0: Matthew chapter 11. Well, some of you know, and I may have shared with you already, that our worship team has been in and out of the recording studio for the past couple of months, going down every Monday night and laying down tracks and trying to get songs on there. And, uh, and it's been going really well and, and uh, honestly been kind of fun to do. And Stephen Sweeney, our saxophone player, who many of you call Stevie G, was playing. And uh, we were all in the sound room listening, and he was he was doing the solo. And he was doing great, as you would expect, through everything. But then we got to Taken Away, the song that we started out with tonight. Taken Away by Love, Taken Away by Grace. You know, that song about Jesus taking away my sin, and Jesus coming to take me away. A song about the rapture, and about uh, what we look forward to. And Stephen's playing the solo. We get to the solo section of Take It Away, and, and he, he does this cool flourish right at the beginning of it, and he's playing, and, and all of a sudden, one note, one note. It wasn't a bad note. It just didn't feel right. And so he kind of stopped, and we, we looked at him through the glass, and he looked at us, and he kind of went like this. So we went back and started over, and over and over, and for some reason, he just kept, I think it's the jazz influence in him, he kept wanting to hit a blues note. And it didn't work Because the song I finally had to go out of the booth and, and read the lyrics to him Look, this is what this is about This is not something to be bluesy about But it was amazing to me In thinking about just that solo It might not seem like such a big deal And yet it changed the whole tenor Of what was going on It just changed the feel of the song We're grooving along taken away And all of a sudden Ooh, And it was like Oh, that's kind of sad <laughs> It doesn't belong in this song It, it shouldn't be here right now And I got to thinking about that when I was studying that. came flooding back into my mind yesterday because I thought if you were composing a musical score for the book of Matthew, there was a movie being made about Matthew, about Jesus based on Matthew's gospel, by the time you get to chapter 11, you would have to start inserting some blues notes. By the end of chapter 11, you would have to be adding in some minor chords because suddenly the the joy and the exuberance and the excitement of the kingdom that we've been studying so far, that the miracles of Jesus, all that He's doing in this ministry that that just is a a fantastic thing, suddenly we start to face some real serious rejection. And beginning in chapter 11 and moving into chapter 12 and on into 13, there's going to be multiple rejections of the king. The music changes. The sense of what is going on changes. The people's response to the ministry of Jesus turns from excited reception to an incited rejection. Across these next three chapters, you're going to experience and see this. We begin in verse 1 of chapter 11, when Jesus had finished giving instructions to His twelve disciples. He departed from there to teach... And preach in their cities. You may recall that chapter 10 was the first commission, the sending of the apostles to Israel, first to Israel, to bring the gospel message that the kingdom is here, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But notice what Jesus does next. The apostles now leave on their mission, they head on out, and it tells us that he departed from there, first of all, to teach and to preach. Now I want to delineate the difference, because I think it matters to us to understand this. There is a difference between teaching and preaching. You will often see these two words put together in the scriptures. He taught and he preached the word, or or he was out preaching and teaching back and forth. But they are two very different things. To teach, it's the Greek word didasko. It's where we get our word didactic. Didactic learning is learning by instruction. An explanation. Teaching is explaining and instructing in the Gospel. It's what we're doing here, right now. It's what Wednesday nights tend to be more focused on. Teaching. Whereas Sunday mornings are more focused on preaching. For preaching is the word keruso. Keruso in the Greek. And keruso means proclamation of the Gospel. There's teaching. Going verse by verse. Seeking to understand. Gaining instruction. And then there's Proclamation. The sending out of the gospel message. So midweek we're teaching focused. On Sundays we are preaching focused. And both are valid and both, both are legitimate. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And in verse 6 he said, In pointing out these things to the brethren, and he's just given a list of things, several things for Timothy to be aware of and think about. He says, "I'm pointing out these things to the brethren, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine, or didasco, the sound teaching, which you have been following. In verse 11 of 1 Timothy 4, he says, prescribe and teach these things. And then on in verse 13, he says, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Now, in his second letter, Paul will write to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, and says, Preach the Word. Now he's moved from preaching to teaching. It says, Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Now, I want to point out just, just one more time. Again, there are people who say that Jesus didn't, didn't instruct in the Word. That Jesus didn't teach from the Old Testament Scriptures. That what Jesus did was walk around, hang out with folks, and just chat. And tell stories. He was much more laid back. He was much more, oh, emerging in his theology. (laughs) Not so much a teacher of the Word, and and that is absolutely false. we know that because Philo, who was a contemporary of Jesus, wrote that the primary purpose of the synagogue was teaching and expounding upon the Scriptures. That's why the synagogues were there. That's why the synagogues are there today. The primary focus is teaching. The Jewish people to gather together And learn of the Scriptures, every synagogue would, and even today, still have an ark. And the ark in that synagogue, back in Jesus' day, you could go into a synagogue, there would be the ark, when you open it up, it would be filled with scrolls. The scrolls of Moses and the prophets. And on a daily basis, those scrolls would be opened up and read. You remember at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Luke talks about this in Luke chapter 4, that he walks into the synagogue and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. And itinerant rabbis would sometimes go from synagogue to synagogue, and when they came in as a guest, they would sit down and be handed a scroll, and they'd open it up and they'd read, and then they'd give explanation to it. That's teaching, didasco. And Jesus did that in his ministry. Matthew 9.35, we already read a couple weeks back, that Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching didasco in their synagogues. That would be opening up the Hebrew Scriptures and giving explanation to them. But he was also proclaiming, Caruso, the gospel of the kingdom. To teach and to preach. And I think, brothers and sisters, we're called to do both. We are called to be proclaimers of the gospel message. A very simple message. Jesus died for you. And he's coming back again. Jesus loves you. Proclaim the message. Proclaim the name. But we're also called to teach. And it may be as simple as as parent to child opening up the word and explaining what something means. Or husband and wife opening the Word together and reading it and discussing it to understand it better. To gain instruction in the Word. Or again, what you're doing here tonight. Opening the Word, walking through verse by verse to understand in its fuller meaning what it's all about. So the first thing Jesus did was He departed from there to teach and to preach. But notice where He went. It says He went to teach and preach in their cities? Whose cities? the Apostles' cities. He sent them out. He did not send Peter back to Capernaum. That was Peter and Andrew's hometown. Didn't, didn't send him back there. He didn't send the other Apostles to their homes and to their hometowns to tell about the Gospel message. He sent them out. And then Jesus Himself stayed behind. And while they were doing their mission, His continued, He was teaching and preaching in their cities. Well, Why? Why not just send them to their own cities where they knew people and they could gather a little following there to to hear the word? Because Jesus knew how that would go. Matthew 13.57, he said, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And Jesus knew something very well. Familiarity breeds contempt. Sometimes it's just too casual a relationship for someone to take you seriously in trying to teach the gospel that place where you're more commonly known sometimes doesn't take kindly to your efforts to teach. John chapter one verse eleven tells us this about Jesus himself. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Where was he least received of all the places he went? Nazareth, his hometown. Why? Because they looked at him and said, well, is Jesus? He played with my kid. You know, I picked him up after school. This is this is Jesus who worked on my desk." You know, when his father's carpenter shop, where does he get off now acting like some kind of prophet? So Jesus says, a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. This is important. Because in many ways, I'm the wrong man to take the gospel to my hometown and to my household. Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not shirking the responsibility. And parents, you have an immediate and a direct responsibility to be the, the primary teachers of your children. That is your role, more so than mine or any teacher at school or anyone else. But, when I'm talking about extended family, friends, people for whom I'm kind of a part of the furniture. you know, They they just know me that way. Well, let me put it this way. When the furniture comes alive, it can freak people out. And if you've been hanging out with people for a while in your life, and suddenly the light goes on, suddenly you change, suddenly now you see Jesus and that's all you want to talk about. People go... You're not as comfortable as you used to be. You're not. You're not telling the jokes you used to tell. You're not drinking the drinks you used to drink. You're not doing the things you used to do. I'm not sure if I can hang with you anymore. And sometimes that household or that hometown becomes rejecting of the word that you're bringing. So sometimes Jesus will send us out. And I, I had a I was thinking about this last week. Um, a friend of mine was down in Seattle at a hospital visiting a family member who was in pretty dire straits. And as he was down there, he met family members who were down there as well and he began to pray for the family member that was sick right there in the hospital room and then began to talk about Jesus with this person and the brother and sister who were there, really out they took him out of the room. They said, this is just not the right time or place for that. Really? (laughs) I would think a hospital would be a pretty good place to be praying. But they had a problem with specifically with him doing that. Why? Because he's changed. He's a different man now than he used to be. He's not the brother they grew up with. And so they look at him and they say, come on. We're not going to take this from you. Okay, well that's great, Rick. So if my own family and my hometown is not going to listen to me, what do I do about that? If I can't take Jesus to my family, who can? The answer is he can He's the one who stayed behind to teach and preach in their cities. He's the one who will take care of it. We we need to remember, and I've said this before, Jesus loves your friends and family more than you do. He is more concerned for a family member who has rejected Him even than you are. Sometimes we'll beat our brains against the wall trying to get Jesus into someone's life and they're just not accepting Jesus. And so what I encourage you to do is take them the gospel if they reject it. We talked about this last week. You shake the dust off your feet, and then you pray that Jesus will send someone to their life that they will listen to. One of the most powerful evangelical prayers you can pray is, Lord Jesus, my sister will not listen to me. Would you send someone who she will listen to? Send someone into her life. Lord Jesus, my husband. Well, not not mine personally, I mean, talking as a, you know, you know what I'm saying? My husband will not come to church with me. He'll have nothing to do with it. Jesus, he won't listen to me. I'm going to be quiet and by my example show him Jesus. But will you send somebody to him? My friend has outright rejected me. Lord Jesus, will you send someone into his or her life who will proclaim the gospel to them? Just remember Jesus has got your back. Verse 2. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to him, Go and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Quoting Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Now we studied this on Sunday morning, we looked at this. As we talked about it, Jesus' ministry had been foretold. But there's something we didn't talk about on Sunday. I may have brushed by it, but I want you to hear this. I think we need to understand. Not only had the ministry of Jesus been foretold, but Jesus' ministry itself was a foretelling. The ministry of Jesus is a foretelling or a foretaste of the kingdom. It was a preview of coming attractions. What Jesus was doing in that short three-year ministry gives us insight and a picture to the larger millennial kingdom to come. All of Isaiah 35 talks about the millennial kingdom. And right in the middle of it, it talks about the healing that will take place in the millennial kingdom. And it's the exact same healing Jesus was doing all throughout the region of the Galilee. You see, the king came along and knowing that he first had to suffer, he brought in his ministry a foretaste of life in the kingdom. Where healing and joyfulness and streams in the Arabah will be commonplace. So we get a snapshot, we get some photos, a brief slideshow, if you will, of the coming kingdom. Because the king is present here. And of course he said in verse 6, Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. And we talked about that there is but one offense that we are to take from Jesus. And that's the offense of the cross. Remember that word from Sunday, the scandal on the scandal of the cross. It's the one thing that we need to take. First Corinthians 1 23, we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, an offense, a scandal, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now again, we covered that Sunday, but but now Jesus says, John, don't be offended by me. And I wonder. I wonder if Jesus was offended by John's question. Because John's question really kind of was, you know, after the fact, are you who you said you were? Are you who I thought you were? Was that an offense to Jesus? How did He react to John? Well, we pick this up in verse 7. It says, "...as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see, He said? A reed shaken by the wind?" But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Jesus loved John. And I think it's really cool here that after sending John's disciples back to him with the message, look at what you see in here, and tell him what's going on out here. Jesus then turns to the crowds following him and he begins to give a really encouraging picture of John. He lauds John as the greatest man born to date. And is if to be sure people understood Jesus wasn't challenged by or upset by John's questioning, he gives complimentary truths about this man. First thing he says is John was firm in his faith. What do you think of John? What did you see when you went out to see John? You did not see a reed shaken by the wind. You didn't see someone who was easily bent back and forth, who sways with the breeze. He was no reed bending this way or that. He stood unbent on the absolute truth of God, whether it was politically correct or not. I love that about John. He was firm in his faith. He did not follow culture. He stood on truth. Culture at the time... Allowed for the adulterous relationship of Herod. Culture at the time didn't say a thing about it. John, however, could not just follow culture. He was firm in his faith. James chapter one, verse six tells us the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. In verse eight of James chapter one, he says, A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. What is that, a double-minded man? Someone who's turning back and forth. It is a reed shaken by the wind. John was not double-minded. He was single-minded. He was pure of heart. He was focused. Paul says that's how we're to be. Ephesians 4.14 We're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. John was firm in his faith. Secondly, John was fed by his father. He was fed by His Father. Jesus clearly declared John to be this man who who was no palace pansy. He wasn't walking around in silk Armani suits while dining on fine feasts prepared by by a plethora of servants. John's out there eating the locusts and the wild honey. He lived off the land by God's provision. And I think he was one of the best human examples we have of Jesus' proclamation in Matthew 6.33. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness And all these things will be added to you. John lived that out. He didn't go get a job. He didn't worry about it. He preached the gospel. He sought the kingdom. He didn't worry about paying bills. He didn't worry about even where his next meal was going to come from. He was just out in the wilderness doing his thing. And he knew God was going to take care of him. And God did. You might say, yeah, but bugs and honey, I'm not sure if I can live on that. Well, John did. He was fed by his father, firm in his faith. Number three, John was the forerunner of the Messiah. And Jesus clearly declared him to be that. He is the messenger about whom Malachi prophesied in Malachi 3.1. That's quoted in verse 10. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you. Said again on Sunday, messenger is the name. That's, that's the, the meaning of the name Malachi. My messenger. And John is that messenger the prophet talked about. But then Jesus says something astounding at the end of verse 11. All these great things about John, yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Which would qualify you. And it would qualify me. We could actually look around tonight and say, we are greater than John the Baptist. Every person in here is greater by the kingdom standard than John the Baptist. Do you find that hard to believe? Look at yourself and go, yeah, no way, no way. God would say, way? <laughs> How can this be? In the kingdom, my friends, the insignificant are always most significant. The last are first. The least is the greatest. Jesus has an affinity for the underdog. Jesus loves that person who there's no way that they should make it. But He makes it possible for them to make it. As preparation for us to receive the kingdom, Jesus said the following, Matthew 23, 11, "...the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself shall be exalted." That's a kingdom paradigm, gang. For kingdom citizens. that we rethink the way the world thinks. We live by a counter-cultural rule. When, when culture says, aspire to greatness the follower of Jesus aspires to humility. When the world says, aspire to be first, the disciple of Jesus aspires to be last. When the world says, be great, the disciple of Jesus diminishes himself or herself for the sake of the glory of Christ. One of the funniest situations in the Gospels, Luke chapter 9, verse 46, tells us an argument started among the apostles as to which one of them was the greatest. Can you even imagine these grown men having an argument about that? Well, I'm greater than you are. No, you're not. I'm greater than you are. Well, I'm the great one. Well, I get to sit by Jesus every night. I sat by Him last night when we were having dinner by the campfire. You think you're so great. Yeah, well, He sent me on a special mission. Yeah, well, He did me too. Well, you know, around and around they go. I mean, come on, guys. And Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood Him by His side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in My name receives Me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among you, this one is the greatest. And I can almost hear Peter saying, Yeah, well, I carried the food bag yesterday. <laughs> you know, I was about ten feet behind Jesus when you guys were all walking beside him, so you know, I'm the least. And then the, I'm sure the argument went the whole other direction. Who was the least among them? But these are not just nice platitudes to make weak and feeble people feel better about themselves. And they're not sayings to make the strong and righteous feel pity for the lesser among us. These are kingdom truths that if you want to be great, you've got to be least. And even John's greatness can be seen and measured this way. John the Baptist, greatest of all born among women, understood this principle. John chapter 3, verse 30, he said, He must increase. I must decrease. That right there, if we could get that, should characterize the Christian life. He must increase. I must decrease. More of you, less of me. More Jesus, less Rick. Don't you go around saying that. You say your own name in that place, okay? <laughs> but that's the measure of great faith in the heart of Jesus' followers. The smallest and the least in the kingdom of Christ are inimitably far greater than the biggest and greatest in the kingdoms of man. And so truly, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Verse 12, For From the days of John the Baptist until now, The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. What does that mean? I'll tell you in a minute. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. A fourth thing to note that Jesus says about John the Baptist here is that John was the figure of Elijah. John was the figure of Elijah. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. The prophet said, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And Jesus says, John, John is the Elijah figure that Malachi was talking about. Jesus quotes Malachi to point to John and say, He's the one that is being talked about here. But there's a problem. John himself said he was not the Elijah. Let me read this to you. John chapter 1, verse, verse 19, the Gospel of John says, The Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Well, they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Well, are you the prophet? And he answered, No. And they said to him, Well, who are you? So we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. So John said he wasn't Elijah. Jesus said he was Elijah. How do we make sense of this? Well, the answer, gang... It is found in Matthew chapter 17, you're going to have to wait for it. You can read ahead if you'd like to. But what does Jesus mean now, going back to verse sorry, going back to verse 12. What does Jesus mean when he says, "From the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force." In verse 12, Jesus acknowledges the pain that John must have been suffering in prison. Jesus acknowledges the fact that the kingdom coming on the scene through John and now through himself is suffering violence and will suffer even a greater violence and hostility as the old guard says, no, we don't want this. This is not the kingdom we were looking for. And the old guard pushes back against it, fighting against the coming kingdom. But I want you to catch something here. Jesus timestamps this statement. He timestamps it. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now. That would be approximately A.D. 27 to A.D. 30. It's a very short period of time that he's talking about. I'll tell you that purposefully, and I'll explain this. But John was already suffering for the kingdom. He was already imprisoned for the sake of the kingdom. There were already those who were pushing back violently against the kingdom. And Jesus would suffer as well. In Mark chapter 9, verse 11... We're told that they asked Him, saying, why is it the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that He will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? How do you explain that, He says? And He's talking to people who would know. Drawing back to Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. And other prophetic passages that say this this Messiah figure had to suffer. And they didn't get it. And Jesus was trying to push him on this point. Okay, you're looking for a kingdom now, an overthrow of Rome, a great power now. How do you figure in the suffering of Messiah? And they could not answer Him. And He said to them, I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. So just as the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, so the king himself would suffer the greatest act of violence in all of history on the cross. And the violence that Jesus is talking about here, and you may have never come across this verse, or maybe you, maybe you have and you've just kind of let it go. This is important. The violence that Jesus is talking about here was limited to a specific point in time. He's talking about the tension in John's and Jesus' day. He's not talking about now. He's talking about then. That tension between those who wanted to force the kingdom on Jesus, the zealots, those who wanted the great overthrow of Rome, and those who wanted to forego the kingdom altogether, Pharisees, the Roman leaders. And these were violent, violent times. John loses his life for it. Jesus will lose his life for it. All the twelve apostles will lose their lives for it. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Christians in the first century church would lose their life for it. These are violent times why are you pushing this so much? Because this idea has been applied by some to mean that we have to take the kingdom by force. Let me read the verse to you again. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. And I've heard pastors preach and teach. What he's saying here is that we have to be those who take the kingdom. we got to go for it. We have to forcefully bring it down and bring it into the world. It's our job to do that. And they take verses like Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, where Paul says, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And they say, see, lay hold. you got to grab on. 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. Paul said, fight the good fight of the faith, Timothy. He said, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Grab on. Hold on. Now, without denying any of the truth of what Paul was saying in those passages, that we are called to lay hold of that for which we are laid hold of by Jesus, or that we are able to fight the good fight of faith, it is problematic to take Jesus' words in Matthew 11, verse 12, and reapply them to our lives today. They're two separate things. They're different words. Jesus used the word in the Greek, "biazo." Biazo means to take by force violently. That's the word he used. Well, when Paul talked about laying hold or taking hold, he used the word katalambano. I know you want to jot that one down and use it maybe tomorrow in your speech. Katalambano just means to lay hold of something or to take hold of it. To grab onto it. Different words. There's a different focus. Jesus was judging the rejection of people toward John and toward himself. Paul is motivating believers to live out our gospel call. And it's a different attitude, and this is most important. It's a different attitude. We don't take the kingdom by conquest and force. We don't even force the kingdom on the world. Jesus was clear about this. We receive the kingdom with childlike faith. We are receivers of the kingdom. We are not conquistadors of the kingdom. We receive the the kingdom like children, not like violent men. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10 verse 15, Truly I say to you whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 28, Since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. We receive the kingdom, we don't fight our way into it. Violent men, Jesus said, take it by force. I mean, does that sound like the way Jesus wants you to live in the kingdom? violent men taking it by force no there's a big difference between childlike reception and childish rejection which is what Jesus begins to address next verse 16 verse 16 he said but to what shall I compare this generation it is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children and they say we played the flute for you and you did not dance we sang a dirge and you did not mourn what's going on here what's he talking about Jesus is describing the way kids play. He's describing the way kids pretend. And in here, he's saying, think about it. It's like some kids pretending to be at a marriage feast or pretending to have a big party. But they get kind of bored with that. So then they start to pretend to be at a funeral, singing sad songs. And they get bored with that. And they get frustrated because people aren't joining in with the game that they're pretending. And so they pretend another game. Well, that doesn't work. So they pretend another game. And that doesn't work. It gets old. And he says, this is what this generation is like. Verse 18, he says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is saying, Gang, neither the solemn call to repentance by John or the soaring invitation of the Gospel by Jesus, neither one is being accepted by you people. Not you people, but them. He's saying, we, we brought the message both ways. And we could bring the message a hundred other ways, I believe Jesus would say, and you would still reject it. You refuse to be satisfied because you refuse to believe. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 81, verse 11, "...My people did not listen to My voice, and Israel did not obey Me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. Oh, that My people would listen to Me, that Israel would walk in My ways." It's a frightening thing to be given over by God. Romans chapter 1 talks about how God gave them over to their lusts and their sensual desires. read an article just today about a church, I believe in Michigan. I don't know if you heard about this. church in Michigan, yeah, that um, this last week, a coalition of gays and lesbians showed up at the church. And they were protesting outside and getting pretty rambunctious. Well, as it turns out, their outside protest, the whole thing, was a a smoke screen to attract attention by the leaders of the church over there. And as the leaders of the church went over there, a bunch of the group got into the church and began turning on the fire alarm, running up and down the aisles when service should have been taking place, the pastors up front, and they were shouting, Jesus is gay! Jesus is gay! And they were hanging up banners that that lauded... I mean, this absolute attack on a church... By a gay organization. I thought, wow, is that that what's going on now? That not even a place where people come to worship and study the word, not even that, it is safe from the impending darkness. The Lord says, I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart. You refuse to be satisfied because you refuse to believe. There's a very simple step that we take with Jesus, and it's a step of faith. I say, Jesus, I believe you. I don't understand it all. I don't know why I feel this way or that way. I don't know why when I read sometimes things in Scripture, it actually contradicts what I think I should do. But I believe you. I'm going to take your word over my own. I'm going to take your lead over the direction that I might want to go myself. And Jesus is talking about the generation that he's dealing with. And he's... He's preceding their rejection. He's starting to see it happen. He, he knows their rejection is happening in their hearts. And he says, it doesn't matter how the gospel is brought to you, whether serious by John or joyfully by me, doesn't matter. You're rejecting it because you just won't believe. You're like kids in the marketplace, playing one game after the other after the other because you just can't get it. And by the way, I think this is the real issue behind church hopping and shopping today. The pastor's too serious. The pastor's too superficial. The worship's too upbeat. The worship's too somber. This fellowship is too nosy. This fellowship is too standoffish. One church is too charismatic. The other church is too boring. I mean, you know, I just I can't find a place that I'm really comfortable. This generation might well be compared to the generation of Jesus' day. We're just not satisfied. You know why we're not satisfied? The primary reason. faith. It's faith. We vacillate from one leader to the next, dissatisfied, distressed, going from one extreme to the other. And I'll tell you, my opinion, just Rick's opinion, but I think the church needs to stop trying to entertain and start just teaching and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that's half the problem, is we have a generation of people who are used to being entertained by church programs instead of just receiving the word. Getting back to the basic, simple things, worshiping Jesus praying together, fellowshipping with one another, and spending time in the Word, the teaching and the preaching of the Gospel. That's why we're here. We're not here for activities. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't show up for the wreath-making program on Saturday. It's going to be fun. Right, Michelle? But this this is not the reason we're here. Show up to do it for fun. But don't expect next year we're going to do it. Well, how come they're not doing that wreath thing again? That's the whole reason I came to this church. And they just, they just canceled that. I can't believe they canceled that program. The church needs to stop trying to entertain and people need to stop looking for what we can get out of church and start thinking about what can I put in? How can I serve here? How can I minister to other people? I am impressed by it. I'm not asking any of you to leave. I love that you're here. And I love that this fellowship is growing. But it does impress me. From time to time we'll have someone show up who is involved with another church somewhere in Oak Harbor Anacortes. And they'll come up to me and they'll say on a Wednesday night, would it be okay if I just come for Wednesday night Bible study? Because I, I'm i involved in the worship team in my home church and I really feel like I'm supposed to be there to help serve and minister. Is that okay? And I'm like, yes. That's fantastic. Because that church needs your help and needs you to be involved. So yeah, come get fed and, and if your pastor wonders what you're doing on Wednesday night, bring him. You know? Sorry, did that sound arrogant? I didn't mean it that way. Stop thinking about what we can get out of this and start thinking about what we can put in. We played the flute and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. And Jesus sums it up all by saying, yet, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Which kind of misses the real translation. Slightly. The word deeds there, it's children. Wisdom is vindicated by her children. In other words, the end result of both John's serious, somber ministry and Jesus' joyful ministry, the end result of both would be children of faith. And that would prove, in fact, your presence here tonight proves the validity of the ministry of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Wisdom is proved right by her children. What Jesus did, his approach in just bringing the word is still having that massive ripple effect out through time, out through history. And you and I are proof of the Gospel. We're proof. Isaiah 43, verse 10, the Lord said, You are My witnesses, My servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe Me and understand that I am He. Before Me there was no God formed, and there will be none after Me. I, even I, am the Lord. There is no Savior besides Me." Which by the way, if God says there is no Savior besides me, and Jesus is called our Savior, what does that tell you about Jesus? It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you, so you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And that message was for Israel. But it's also for us. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Wisdom is vindicated by her children, and you all are the children of the teaching of Jesus Christ. Vindicating that message, even now, so long after. Now here's where the music slows, and the chords of tragedy begin to get struck. The majority of people... In the ministry triangle. Remember what the ministry triangle is of Jesus there on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee? I mentioned this before. Three cities. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And the majority of the people in these three cities where Jesus did the most of His miracles and the most of His teaching, the vast majority of that group of people would reject Him. Verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. A railing judgment. Suddenly the seaside ministry triangle becomes more like the Bermuda Triangle. In which ships and planes you know, are occasionally and inexplicably lost. And here we see three cities that will be unexplainedly and inexplicably lost. We look at Jesus' ministry here. He poured the majority of His effort and energy into these three cities. How is it possible that they missed Jesus? The vast majority of His miracles, blind seeing and deaf hearing, lame walking, dead raised, it happened right there, between those three cities. Back and forth from one to the other. The majority of his teaching right there, including the Sermon on the Mount, would have been right there in between or close to one of those cities there on the northern shores of the Galilee. And Jesus, he compares Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum to three of the most highly wicked and severely judged cities of Israel's memory. Two of them, Tyre and Sidon, were coastal Phoenician cities. Tyre, about 35 miles north of Capernaum in the Sea of Galilee. Zidon was another 30 miles farther north beyond Tyre. In Joel chapter 3, verse 4, the Lord says, Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre, Zidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. And there is massive prophecy that Tyre and Zidon would be wiped out. Guess what? In 345 B.C., Zidon was conquered and sold into slavery by Antiochus III. In 332 B.C., Tyre was enslaved by Alexander the Great. And you know what happened to Sodom. You know the whole story. By all human logic, these three cities, Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida, that witnessed most of Jesus' miracles, should be thriving today. In fact, if you go to Israel today and you see the location of these cities, they should be thriving Because the location, even in today's climate and economy, is perfect. Mild climate, beautiful beachfront locations, vast resources, not to mention the fact that all three have immediate access to Israel's prime water source, Lake Kinneret. And yet all three of these cities today are nothing but uninhabited ruins. Archaeological digs. Now I've shared in here, Capernaum is one of my favorite places to stop on the tour but if you walk around the streets of Capernaum it's nothing but ruins it's a place that was completely wiped out uninhabitable nobody lives there today which is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen and why? why did they turn against him why didn't they catch this why didn't they see who he was one simple word unbelief it all came back to unbelief it always does it always does. I could do great miracles here before you in the barn. And it wouldn't make you believe anymore if you haven't decided, if you haven't accepted the truth of Jesus Christ. It all comes back to faith. Another article that I read this week. It's when the Associated Press came out on Tuesday said, ads set to run on D.C. buses. And the article reads, you better watch out There is a new combatant in the Christmas Wars. Ads proclaiming, Why believe in a God? Just be good for goodness sake. These ads will appear on Washington, D.C. buses starting next week and running through all of December. The American Humanist Association unveiled the provocative $40,000 holiday ad campaign on Tuesday. In lifting lyrics from Santa Claus is Coming to Town, the Washington-based group is wading into what has become the perennial debate of over commercialism, religion in the public square, and the meaning of Christmas. So visit D.C. this Christmas, and for the entire month of December, you will see most of the D.C. buses with a big ad printed along the side, Why Believe in a God? Just be good for goodness sake. The rebellion gang in this world is heightening. It is getting more in terms of a frontal attack. It's not that that thing on the fringe of society so much anymore. It is becoming more and more an immediate and full-on assault of Christian belief and faith. Goodness for goodness sake. Just be good for goodness sake. Guess what? And kids who love that Christmas song, it's bogus. You can't be good for goodness sake. I tried every Christmas my entire life and it was impossible I think I shared in here the one Christmas where I busted open my gifts early because I couldn't wait. So much for being good that year. Be good for goodness sake. There is no such thing. There is no such thing. But you know, that part of the phrase is, I believe, even worse than saying why believe in a God. The question why believe in a God, that's easily answered. I can tell you why to believe in a God. Look around you. Let me tell you some stories about Jesus and what happened. Let me give you some historical accuracy and some archaeological evidence and proof of the gospel. I can give you all that. Why believe in a God? Because we wouldn't be here otherwise. But much more difficult, even in the church, is the issue of being good for goodness sake. This American Humanist Association, their whole platform is, we're not good because a God tells us to be good. We're just good because we're good people. Baloney! That's not true! And it's an absolute lie. And yet people kind of go, yeah, why don't we just be good just just for the sake of being good? Because it won't last. Because you won't be good for long. What turned this ministry triangle of Jesus into the Bermuda Triangle of Souls? I'll tell you what did it. It was unbelief. It was thinking that they were fine without Him. That they didn't need Him. And Jesus goes on in verse 25 and He says this, I praise You, Father, Lord of Heaven and Earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in Your sight. Now listen, all things have been handed over to Me by My Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Jesus says again, it's childlike faith. It's not childish gains. It's not a childish game. We're not playing a game here. We approach the Lord and we receive him with childlike faith. And in verse 27, again he says, All things, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Jesus said that another way. As quoted in John chapter 14, verse 6 No one comes to the Father but through me. It's not your goodness. It's not your accomplishments. certainly not your greatness in the kingdom. You only come to God through Jesus. This is not a new message for us tonight. It's one we hear over and over. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus. The problem with these three cities was they looked at Jesus and they said, Eh, we'll go another way. There is no other way. One way to the Father, and that is through the Son. Father, we join Jesus with praising You that You chose to reveal these things in the most simple of ways. And that You chose to reveal Yourself in such a way that it would require us to have faith to accept and receive You. Lord we ask that you increase our faith and Father we pray that even as we are sent out that you will find faith in people in our home, hometowns in our households we pray Father we won't become among those who play games in the streets that we won't be pretenders of the gospel but that we at face value accept your word as it is and accept Jesus you as our savior Father, encourage us not to be people who are put off by rejection, but people who pray all the more. And Lord, I just want to ask, in, in our country and in, in what we see happening, and again, it was another week where I just saw so many, so many news clippings and articles about some really scary stuff happening. Father, I pray for the strength, again, for the light to shine more brightly out of us. I pray in the waning days of history that we would stand up and be counted, that we, like John the Baptist, that we would decrease, but that Your light and Your glory would increase in us. May we well represent You. In Jesus' name, Amen.